medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. East Asian medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Geological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of East Asian medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese and other East Asian medicines. Listen into these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Geological. My guest today is Winter Jade Forrest. Winter Jade has been practicing Shiatsu since 1975 and teaching it since 1977. She served the profession by helping to form and launch the American Organization for Bodywork Therapies of Asia. And from 1995 to 2006, she served on several different committees of the NCCAOM. She has studied with master practitioners both in Asia and here in the West. Practicing bodywork has led Winter Jade to realize that healing happens on many levels. And so starting in 1980, she embarked on apprenticeships with healers from four different cultural traditions, Celtic, Shinto, Cherokee, and Russian, all of which is woven into her work. Today, we're sitting down for a discussion of what I'm calling handcrafted medicine and getting a shiatsu practitioner's perspective on the body, channels, points, and the practice of medicine. Us acupuncturists often pride ourselves on how we use our hands to better understand and help our patients. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to share some tea with one of our colleagues from the shiatsu side of the house. I know for myself, it's easy to give more weight to the theories in my head than the sensing in my hands. And so I'm looking forward to a discussion around touch, sensing, and how to engage our work from a fuller sense of embodiment. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. 
Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Winter Jade, welcome to Chiolata. Hi. Thank you, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Great. I've been so looking forward to this conversation with you. I am too. Let's start with a little bit of background. I mean, you've basically been practicing, studying and practicing shiatsu since I graduated from high school. That's a long time. <laughs> it is a long time. <laughs> I never, yeah. I'm not sure I like hearing that, but okay. <laughs> it's, ju it's just where we are at this point, yeah, right? Yeah, there you go. Uh -huh. yeah, I'd love to just have a little background on, on some of the influences that have brought you to where you are today. Well, um, first of all, I just want to say that when you were doing the intro, all of those things that you mentioned, at that time, I was known as Lindy Farino. Uh, Winter Jade Forest, oh my goodness, sorry about that. Okay. Um, Winter Jade Forest is my Cherokee name, which I was charged with using a couple of years ago. So... I now go by that name, but many people would know me still as Lindy Farino. Not everyone has been in my life when that change happens. So mm -hmm. I wanted to say that. And then the influences in my life, I guess you mentioned a lot of them. First of all, shiatsu itself happened, I guess you would say, as an excuse to get out of the house because I was in a very strange time in my life where I had gotten divorced and my mother died at both ends of the same week. Oh my goodness. And I, I, it was intense, really. And I went home to take care. I'm the oldest of five children. The youngest is multiply handicapped, or was. She has since died. But with a rheumatoid arthritis and the meds they gave her for that made her blind, and there's just a lot. So I went home to take care of her. And... I found out very abruptly, so I just left Boston and went back to Connecticut. And I ended up sort of, the way I tell the story now, I say, I was living in my mother's house, wearing my mother's clothes, taking care of my mother's children, and dealing with my mother's husband, who of course was my father, but everybody was projecting my mother onto me because it was a huge loss. And um, it was very, very hard on me going through a divorce and all like that. And um, I realized I needed some therapy, and the therapist who was recommended to me lived two and a half hours away in New York City. And uh, so I kind of liked that I would have five hours of driving. <laughs> plus, what a relief. Plus this thing. Yes, exactly. I would get out of the house. And doing this made me realize that really, if I could find something to do in New York that could not be found in Hartford, Connecticut, where I was, and I could tell my family, I just have to do this, that spending a little more time away, just a day, would really be the thing to save my sanity. So I started looking around and I found this book on Shiatsu. There was a school right there in New York. And that's how I started. Now, of course, I call it divine providence, yes, but yes. it really, it just grabbed me from the very first class. Mm. Divine providence, you know, that often seems a lot like the world falling completely apart. Well, 
<laughs> you heard my story. <laughs> yeah. It was falling apart. Um, but yeah. it came right back together. And through this particular school is how I met Masunaga, who invented Zen Shiatsu, which is the basis of the work that I do. And he would then come to New York City every year for intensives and spend some time. And because I was a teacher in that school at that time, um, it was my job, along with colleagues of mine, Pauline Sasaki was one of them, who is also famous in the shiatsu world. Uh, we were charged with uh, taking care of Masanaga outside the classroom. So getting him to the restaurants, uh, getting students to come so he could tell more stories and explain more his work. And I think that we got more out of those dinners over uh, booze and food and uh, like that than we did in the classroom. It was really wonderful. And because Kishi was his number one protege, at one time, Ohashi brought Kishi over as well. And I was immensely impressed by this man. He was very young at the time. I think he was just in his 20s. And um, he, he was something special. He really was. And I couldn't tell what it was. But because of the way I felt about him, I moved to Europe. He was living in Paris at the time when he came to our school in New York City. And I thought I was going to be moving to Paris, which made me quite happy to study with him. But by the time I got the money together, he had moved to Germany. So that's where I went. And I spent uh -huh. two and a half years living in the same house with him. We did it traditional Japanese style and studying. So I had access 24-7. And he was indeed amazing. I don't, he was no longer doing shiatsu when I met him. He was working off the body at this point, and he had developed his own thing that he called Seiki. And even though I don't practice Seiki, it, I would say that Kishi is my biggest influence on my work. The way he thought about things, the way he respected the human being, the quality of touch, all of these things, he is my main influence. And... Um, and then when I came back to the States, I couldn't find anybody to equal him in the shiatsu world or anything like that. So I do like studying. I do like having mentors. And um, I began looking around and I found Grandmother River, who is a Cherokee, I guess you would say medicine person. They say priest, whether you're male or female. And I do have a little bit of Cherokee in me, not enough to get on the rolls, but uh, enough to be accepted by Grandmother River. And I studied with her, apprenticing for seven years, and learned Cherokee medicine, which is uh, healing and many other practices from the Cherokee way. And I found that studying in this way from a culture that's closer to my own really brought home what I'd been learning about Asian medicine, the cosmology mm. of it. It really made it stronger in me. It was so interesting. And then also with this Russian shaman, uh, whom we call Dr. Gregory. He's no longer going by doctor. He was a doctor in Russia, but he isn't here in the States. He taught, I think the biggest work that I got from him was the work he did on chakras, which I still use to this day, and being able to, I guess you would say, not incorporate really, but somehow inform just the idea of the energetic system, that made a big impression on me. And his, his look into it was very different from the way the Indian culture looks on it, not the Native American, but India, India. And I really resonated with that. Um, it's very strong. It, it kind of develops your own chi by doing the practices he gave. And so I would say that those are my four biggest influences in terms of people. I, I'm curious, this piece about Gregory and the chakras. I often have patients ask me about their chakras. Mm -hmm. All I know about chakras is it's a part of Ayurvedic medicine. It's part of, of Indian medicine. And I suspect it kind of matches up in some ways with the way Chinese medicine practitioners look at things, but I've not gone into it in any depth 
to have any kind of sense of how these things might be hooked together. It sounds like you've been able to have some different influences that gives you some insight into this. Is that, is that the case? Um, I think you're right. I, I have to say that what I learned about chakras is not at all Ayurvedic, really. It came from this Russian tradition. And I think that, the, that learning about chakras is more about cosmology than just medicine, just like you could mm. say that the cosmology of Asia filters into the medicine, but it isn't the medicine. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like that. And what I have used this chakra work for is mostly my own personal development, my own what I call bumping up of my energetic field so that I have more of my energy, more of my field is strong for working with clients. I don't particularly infuse it. Mm -hmm. So sort of a, a Qigong. Yes. We call I, it Qigong, I, I, right? In fact, when I teach it, I call it Chakra Qigong. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, sure. What do you want to know? <laughs> I just like, well, I'm, as, a, as a practitioner who gets asked a question about how does this match up with chakras, and since I don't really know the first thing about mm -hmm. chakras, how about just chakra and the meridian system 101? Right. Well, um, there, there are a couple of things that I would say to a client who asked a question like that. One is that I would say it doesn't always work to mix systems until you really know each one very intimately. And then you can make some of those, um, I don't know even what you would call it, connections, I guess. For my own self, I know that my colleague, Pauline Sasaki, she did put certain meridians together with certain chakras. And the way she did this was by, oh, I don't even know how to say it. I guess looking at or, or just putting together the function of a chakra uh, and seeing what meridian functions in that same way and made those correlations. I have to admit that I don't do that. I don't see anything wrong with it. I think it probably works. If we're talking about function, then whatever system you use to get to that function is fine. And if you use more than one together, may, you know, maybe that's fine if you know what you're doing. It's not the way I work, but I would be able to say to someone if they asked, does my blah, blah, blah symptom have anything to do with chakras? I would be able to say yes or, you know, in this way, or something like that. The way Dr. Gregory taught chakras, he did it also in, the, in terms of human development. So he would say, for instance, the first chakra is like the first seven years of your life. He would say, the first chakra is like the child, the baby, who doesn't really know the difference between himself and his mother, that at this point of development, there is no differentiation. And so I am is a way, and Adaya Judah, who is a famous chakra person, I am is the, is the sort of definition that she gives to that chakra. And this kind of means from Dr. Gregory's point of view, that everything that a child feels is part of them right? They haven't differentiated yet. Mm. At the second chakra, that's the stage of development where you begin to realize that somebody else has different feelings than you, and you begin to imagine what they feel like. So this is the point in a child's life when they start drawing things and, and giving the drawing to somebody, their mother or their father, or picking flowers and giving them, you know, where you have the understanding that the other uh, exists. At the level of the first chakra, you take care of yourself. You, you have the right to be, so you eat well, you, you sleep well, you, you do all the things that take care of your health, make you survive and thrive. At the second level, you want to do this for somebody else as well. You want to make sure that they... At the third chakra level, this is when you are branching out and learning about your um, institutions. So your churches, your communities, your institutions, your schools, all of that. And you begin to care for more than just another. Then you have the group. 
At the fourth level, the heart chakra, this is where you love the whole world as it is. You can't help but just love it. At the fifth chakra, you are developing your um, what we would call psychic sense, but this also started at the second chakra because at the second chakra, when you started imagining that somebody else would have another feeling and being able to feel what it's like for them, that starts your psychic development. Fifth chakra is much more so at a spiritual level. And then your sixth chakra is where you can see your future and manifest it. Your seventh chakra is where you connect with the divine. And these are lessons in normal development of a human being. And so it's important from his point of view to develop your first three chakras first. They call them the chakras of matter to make sure you have a firm foundation for a more spiritual, um, heavy life. I'm really taken here by how looking at these chakras is not just a look at cosmology, but it's also a look at human development. Yeah. Right. Macrocosm, microcosm. It's uh, yeah. It's a lovely connection. Great. Well, thank you. I, I didn't realize we were going to get into this piece of it here, but uh, you brought up chakras and I, again, I, I get that question on a regular basis. Uh-huh. So this, this gives me a way of orienting toward it a bit. Okay. I, you know, I've had a suspicion. I've got some different friends that are shiatsu practitioners and, uh, and some of them practice Chinese herbal medicine. And and some of them, I mean, I love the conversations I have with them because they've got this other way of thinking about the medicine, often because they have a real ability to sense, Mm. an ability to put their hands on people and and to, to make sense of what they feel in a way that's a bit extraordinary to me. I know that that my training, and I think a lot of our our training, uh, when we first start approaching this, especially for acupuncturists, we have all these theories and we have all these models in our head and all these ideas about how things are supposed to work. Yeah. But it seems that that there's a real difference, and especially if you've practiced for any length of time, you'll find that the ideas in your head don't necessarily match what's going on with the person on your table. And so I'd like to get a little. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I'm sure. I, I, I bet we've got a bunch of listeners going, oh, yeah, I know that one too. <laughs> so I'd like to get into the experience of the channels and the points from a sensate point of view, as opposed to from a book learning point of view. Yeah. And to get your take on on the channels and, and, and how you basically how you interact with them. Can you feel them? And how do you learn to feel them? And the points, do you work out of, you know, an idea of, Oh, this point does that because this is what we learned about say spleen six, or is there something that you're getting through your hands and, and through your experience that leads you into a point? Mm-hmm. Well, these are some really good questions. And I don't know that my answers are going to be very helpful for what you're asking, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how I practice and what it feels like to me. So one of the things that I, I have to admit, oh, self-disclosure here, I have forgotten most of the theory that I've learned about points because I don't use them. I use the meridian as a whole. And um, I sometimes lament that I don't remember that information because sometimes a point really calls your hand and you just have to be there. And I can think to myself, man, if I could only remember what this is, I might have a fuller idea of what I'm doing on this point. But I don't. So I can't help you with the point information. So sorry. Um, And that's mainly because my main influence in Shiatsu is from Masanaga, who extended the meridian system. He himself was a scholar. He um, wanted to practice psychology, uh, which he studied from a European model. And when he tried it out in Japan, it didn't work because people wouldn't just open up and talk. And what he discovered is that if he would touch them and do some shiatsu on them, that would start them talking. So from that, he started putting together what he had learned in his psychology courses, 
he had a PhD in it, so he he was very learned. And what he knew of the, I hesitate to even say medicine, um, but I guess I would have to, what he knew of the medicine and the meridians, and started putting together more of the psychology than, say, we have with the five elements or whatever. But what he did then was say that the most important thing was your hand, because there will never be an instrument. This is actually not only his idea, but in Japan, it is believed that the sensitivity of the hand can never, ever, in all of time, be matched by any kind of machine. And so it is the perfect instrument for diagnosis and also for treatment. So the emphasis is on what you feel and how you learn to feel basically is by wanting to and trying to, right? Really wanting to see, okay, when I feel that the way I learned was I asked a lot of questions of my classmates. So when I put my hand on a meridian or on a place, on a point, whatever you want to say, and felt something at all, like I would just ask, do you feel anything there? And then I would, if I thought it was pain, I would ask, is it painful? Sometimes they would say yes, and sometimes they would say no. And what I learned by getting the answers to these questions was how to train my sensitivity. So after X amount of time, I learned the difference between something that felt painful that wasn't and something that felt painful and was. And I then started asking questions, oh, does that feel this? but not really hurt, and they would always answer yes. So over years of doing this, and I still ask my clients, 40, I'm, I've been practicing over 40 years now, I still ask my clients because I want to make sure that I am training my sensitivity. At a certain point, you really pretty much know a lot without asking. And what I have used the philosophy or the cosmology or the understanding of the meridians for now is to train how I touch. If I get somebody whose diagnosis comes up in either earth element, uh, yin or yang, I know that either they need nurturing or they're too selfish. And I will apply my touch accordingly. I will either give them a, a big hug for an hour as I'm running all over their body, or I will try and stimulate their um, generosity a little more. And that is the beauty of the hand, is that you can touch in all kinds of ways. I often, in a classroom, I'll just tap my student on his shoulder and say, in front of the whole class, by the way, this is a demo, just tap them on the shoulder and say, oh, it's so great to see you. How have you been? And how good that feels. And then do the same tap and say, what are you doing coming into class late? And see how different that same touch mm -hmm. feels, right? And I think that this is translatable without the words. And so that is about the sensitivity of the hand. And, and that's how I use my treatment. That's the big broad stroke. Of course, I know a little bit about what meridians do what and where they're going to be more influential, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the broad stroke is this is about relieving suffering, which uh, to me, I make that sort of Buddhist difference between pain and suffering. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. 
Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. I am, well, first of all, I'm struck. You talk about using the meridians more than the points, and, and I can remember when I was in acupuncture school, Early on, I can't even remember the teacher or the class, but they were talking about some very ancient texts that have been dug up. And really, those texts didn't have much to say about points, Mm. but they had everything to say about meridians. Mm. And, you know, so I think that is also a part of the discussion over the years. There's points, there's meridians. It's like, where are we putting our attention? There's there's different ways that we can react, you know, interact with these things. When when you can come I, can to can I say something about that, Michael? What I I learned that because needles were a later development than hands, mm-hmm. of course, that points became important with that because the needles themselves, depending on which metal they were made of, could have a different effect. They go into the body. You don't put needles all the way along a meridian. And because their influence or their effect is so much stronger in a certain way, you only need a few points. And so they looked for the points that would be most indicative of this or that. They, By experience, it was all empirical. But if you're using your hands instead of needles, that it is more effective. This is what I was taught by shiatsu mm-hmm. teachers, who of course have their own prejudice, that if you're using your hands, it's the the whole meridian needs to be used. You can't do it with just a few points. It's a different tool. It needs a different application. Right. So if you're working with, say, the gallbladder meridian, you would literally go head to toe. Is that is that the case? Yeah. I mean, section by section, I wouldn't run it from gallbladder one to gallbladder forty four. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do any part of it at any time. It is, after all, holistic medicine. Any one point touches the whole, so yeah. But yes, I would probably do every bit of that meridian. And because I do Zen Shiatsu, that meridian exists for me even in the arms because all 12 meridians are both in the arms and legs in Zen mm-hmm. Shiatsu, yeah. So you really look at it as the great meridian. You would look at the tie-in as being spleen and lung, for example. Yes, but in this Zen Shiatsu system, both lung and spleen are in the arm. It's not either or. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Literally 12 meridians in the legs and 12 in the arms. So there are meridians between the classical meridians. Meridians between the meridians. Yeah, that's right. Oh, my goodness. That sounds vastly more complicated. Yeah, it doesn't seem so, of course, after you learn it. Mm-hmm. Masanaga found these meridians in ancient texts. This is the kind of scholar he was. In studying the classics in Japan, he uh, decided to learn old Japanese so that he could go back further. That's like trying to study Chaucer in Old English, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that wasn't good enough for him, so he learned Chinese, and then he learned Old Chinese, and he really went back. And in the oldest texts, he found this system that he refined and made into Zen Shiatsu. So before the advent of needles, the gallbladder meridian did run everywhere. But once you have needles and you only need a few points, what they did was then just show on the on the meridian maps the strongest part of that uh, channel that was all they needed so there's that it's i mean the history of our medicine here is fascinating mm. it, it really is hmm. you mentioned a little earlier in this conversation that when you put your hand on someone and you come up you were saying earth and in this case, is this someone who needs a big hug or is this someone who needs to have their generosity stimulated? Mm. What, a, what a great diagnostic parameter. That's <laughs> 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 what I'm thinking. How, how do you come to your, I'm going to use air quotes here, how do you come to your diagnosis? How do you get a sense of who someone is, where someone is, and what they need? 
Um, in Zenshiatsu, we use a Hara diagnosis, which is an abdominal diagnosis. And there are, uh, just like in the classics, there are areas of the abdomen that connect to, or however you want to say, a meridian, right? An organ mm -hmm. system. And so I still use that. We In Zenshiatsu, there's something called Kyojitsu, which is somehow akin to excess deficient, but not exactly mm -hmm. the same. Once I studied with Kishi, he did his Hara diagnosis off the body. You can come up with only one meridian. You don't need a Kyo and a Jitsu or an excess deficient. And you run with that. So I do still use abdominal diagnosis. I do still use the meridians as the basis for what I'm doing. But, you know, I've been in practice so long that mm -hmm. everything gets more complex. The more you know, the less you know, as you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I like the broad strokes and then just bringing it down into the physical body. Mm-hmm. You were just talking about uh, Kyo and Jitsu being roughly the equivalent of Shu and Shur, excess and deficiency. Mm. How are they different? Well, I think a main difference is that, okay, when I learned Chinese medicine, I learned TCM. I know that the classics, people are going more back to the classics now in the acupuncture schools, but I learned TCM. And in TCM, you're really diagnosing for symptoms. And in Kyoin Jitsu, you're not really diagnosing for symptoms. What you're looking at is what about the personality of this patient is going to help um, that any particular thing, let's uh, pick uh, tight shoulders, that tight shoulders could actually, because we have 12 meridians everywhere, tight shoulders could actually show up in any meridian. It doesn't have to be small intestine or gallbladder or something that's right there. And so you're not really diagnosing the symptom. You're diagnosing what does this person need to fully express their energy. So it's a little bit different. It's not that different because the symptoms fall right into that. But the orientation, your mindset is a little different, I would say. Oh, it seems, it seems vastly different. Mm -hmm. It seems vastly different. And, and I mean, I'm not sure about your practice. I know in my practice, and I suspect for a lot of practitioners, their practice, people come in I don't think they're necessarily looking to express a deeper expression of themselves. I mean, that may be in the background. Actually, I suspect that's always in the background. That's just called being a human being. But yeah. <laughs> <it's> just, <laughs> but so often when people come into our practices, they want their knee to be better. They want their uterus to be more fertile. They want their head to be less achy. They've got They've got a something they want to get rid of, or they're lacking a something and they want to get it. And, you know, in many ways, the, the I'm going to use air quotes here again, the practice of medicine, we make certain promises. I'm going to help you with your this or help you with your that. And then sometimes they realize that there's something behind the shoulders. There's There's a part of them that maybe recognizes, oh, this is a place where I can it gets some help with expressing myself better, for example. I'm so glad you're saying this, Michael, because I've been doing this for so long, I forget that in our culture, we still make a big difference between mind and body. Oh, we absolutely do. I have people get off my table and they feel better and they go, well, I don't know if I'm actually feeling better or if it's just in my mind. Yeah, and right. I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, where's your mind? So... I, but I'm so glad you brought this up because the way I speak about the medicine, many people would go to the same place that you went, even students, and then they stop paying attention in a certain way to the physical body, that the meridians are all about energy and energy is different from the physical. And for me, that is just not true. So all that stuff that I said about expressing oneself, 
your own health is part of yourself. Your body is part of yourself. It's not all mind. And so, of course, I'm going to address the symptoms. And of course, people who come in with a knee problem, I myself, if I come in with a knee problem and you diagnose my stomach and or spleen meridians, which are perfect for knee problems, and then you work them like they're energy and not the matter of my physical knee, I really get upset. <laughs> I don't think there's a difference between the physical and the mental. I think that when we, when I'm teaching shiatsu in the broad thing, I teach um, that we that we are within a, a kind of. I like to call it the luminous egg. That's from Carlos Castaneda back in the. I love the luminous egg, and that within that luminous egg, we can say there are four layers: the physical, the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual. But most people will look at it, there's the physical body and then all these layers outside of it. It's not true for me. And so when I talk in the broad strokes, my hand is on a person's body, I'm feeling their physical nature. It's not all in my head and I don't expect it to all be in their head. What I really do think is that what we think shows in our bodies, what we feel shows in our bodies, how we relate to God shows in our bodies, how we relate to our families shows in our bodies. And that is what I am touching, all of that, not just a, a, a painful knee. And so when I'm talking about expression, I really do mean the whole thing. So back to the mind and mind-body for a moment. It, I mean, even our English language, we've got a tough time with this. Because when we say there's a mind-body connection, we're already presupposing a disconnection. We're already presupposing things that are related but not necessarily connected or things that are vastly different. Mm -hmm. Which, in fact, seems to happen. Yes. Well, and it's easy to focus. Well, I think there's all kinds of historical reasons for it, you know, with our culture, which I don't, I don't even know if I want to get into at the moment. Mm. In fact, I don't want to get into it at the moment because what I'm really concerned about is when people come to us or we're working with folks and I mean, sometimes they're coming in because they've got that busted up knee and they just want the knee to get better. But sometimes maybe they've got a busted up knee and their life is kind of busted up. They're not realizing it. Um, but the knee is what gets their attention and that's what brings them in. And, and we as practitioners have this idea that we actually are vastly connected between the chi level and something that's very much, you know, the meat suit for lack of a better term. And as a practitioner, where and how to best intervene? I mean, I know there's practitioners out there that say, you know what, I don't care about physical symptoms. I'm just treating the spirit level. Yeah. That's all I'm doing. I'm just treating the spirit. Body will take care of itself. Spirit's what's most important. And then you've got other people. They're like, I don't really care about a person's psychology. I'm just going to fix their dang knee. Mm -hmm. For those of us that are somewhere in the middle, how do you know where and when to work at these different levels that are all interpenetrated and connected that way. Yeah, that's, that's the tricky part. And um, that's the part where I think the practitioner has to always be developing herself because you can't treat what you don't understand. Mm. And so if you want to go into those higher levels, you have to train at those levels yourself. And that is really what led me to all these indigenous healers because their physical medicine is connected to their spiritual medicine. And that, and I think that division that we um, industrialized peoples make between body and spirit or body and mind, that doesn't happen in those indigenous cosmologies. And that's why I went there, to train myself. And it is a huge development. I mean, I've been through immense crises 
of, I don't know, self-esteem, um, self-knowledge, uh, all, all kinds of things. It's serious. <laughs> it's serious mm-hmm. to go into those higher levels. And I don't think people who aren't willing to do that work, to really let their own egos break down in scary ways, I, I don't think they have the right to be saying things like, I only care about the spiritual level if they haven't been there. But I think that we do in our culture think that there is this sort of hierarchy and we want to go for that higher level without realizing, because as Americans, we're quite spoiled. We really don't, um, we like instant gratification. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. And you can't go there with instant gratification. You won't get there. (laughs) So it's a lot of work. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the only game in town. It's a lot of fun, as hard as it is. But the idea that we are, there's this whole new age saying, right? We are spiritual beings having a physical experience. Okay, if that's true, then let's deal with that physical experience. Let's see how spiritual it can be. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. What I think I'm hearing you say is that there's really no breakthroughs without breakdowns. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I never would have put it in those words, but I, I may just borrow that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I think I know in my clinic, and I suspect in most clinics, we're seeing people that often are in the midst of some sort of a breakdown. If they didn't feel like things were somehow coming apart, they're probably not seeking out our help. I mean, why would you go to a shiatsu practitioner or an acupuncturist? I mean, especially an acupuncturist, weirdo with a needle. Why would you walk in there if you didn't have something going on that was troublesome? I mean, wouldn't you rather go out for coffee with your friends? Yeah. Not only why would I go in there if there wasn't something troublesome, but why would I go in there if the doctors couldn't fix it? Right. <laughs> Because my insurance will pay for the other stuff. If that doesn't work, that's when we get the people. Yeah. When everything, it's a, when it's really breaking down. Mm. When it's really breaking down. I mean, I feel like I often see refugees of the uh, conventional medicine system. There are people that have fallen through, or they've been, or there are people that have been injured, or you know, really maybe, you know, earlier I was talking about the promise that medicine gives. You know, I mean, medicine. I think all of us in this trade we're making kind of a prom. We're making a promise. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you with your suffering. And when that doesn't get delivered on, people go looking in other places. You know, mm-hmm. they walk in our doors. Yeah. I want to move into this just a little bit further here. Okay. This is uh, <laughs> such curious territory. You know, so often... And especially with medicine, especially these days with evidence-based medicine and research and, you know, 
all kinds of stuff on the internet. People think there's a map, you know, there's, there's a way, you know, if I do A, B, C, and D, it's going to get me to result, you know, X mm-hmm. that I'm looking for. Um, but often when people come and seek us out for a health problem, they've, they've actually wandered into foreign territory. Mm. The usual reliable maps for navigating life no longer match the reality of what their days look like as they unfold. And it's and in times like this, times of a, a breakdown that might lead to a breakthrough, but we don't know. But in times of a breakdown, maps don't work. And it seems like a compass is more useful, something that helps us to navigate in those spaces in between where, where we're literally off the map of how we make sense of the world. How do you help your patients with discovering and, and learning to orient with something more like a compass in a, in a time where maps are unreliable? Mm. Well, let me just say that the definition of medicine from a Cherokee point of view, and probably other Native American points of view, your medicine is the gifts that you have been given by Creator at birth for the purpose of helping all the people. And so your medicine is what you develop. You you might learn herbs, you might learn to work with gems, you might learn all that stuff, but your medicine is really your talent, your special gift. And so when you're talking about helping a client with their, um, you know, compass, my colleague Pauline Sasaki, she used to say, the maps that we're given are just maps, they aren't the territory. Once you're in the territory, it's different. Mm-hmm. And um, we've all noticed, as we said at the beginning, that practice can be very different from theory. So what I love about having learned this medicine, this Asian medicine, is that it comes from an entirely different perspective than our own cultural heritage. And so when we learn it, we really sort of, I don't know if you can say open our brains, develop our brains. I don't know what happens, but some kind of expansion happens in the way we view the world. Mm-hmm. And so I like using the theory in these cases to say to a client, do you know, in, in Asian medicine, the meridian, I, and I don't name meridians by organ names because they just go right to, oh, if you say bladder meridian, oh my God, have I got a bladder infection or something like that? Say mm-hmm. heart, oh my God, I'm going to have a heart attack. So I don't use those organ names, but I will say the meridian that's coming up for you, they talk about it this in such a way. Does that make any sense to you? Does that resonate at all with you? And then let them start talking. So for instance, we have this idea of worry going with the earth element. But from Zen Shiatsu point of view, there is worry, which is real worry, like where's the money going to come from to pay my bills this month? And then there's the thing that spins around in the head. Oh, my God, I'm never going to get it. Keeps you up at night. And uh, Masanaga puts that more in with fire, uh, that it's an emotional response and a busy mind more than a real worry. And so if people will say to me, I'm, I worry all the time. I do ask them about that. And, and most of the time, they're not worrying. They're spinning their own thoughts. And I can talk to them about that. We can start to unravel those things. So this is like my, my particular talent is to see the medicine in a certain way that I can apply to my client. And I'll work with it that way. And I'll try to open up their own minds to different ways of looking at their life so that they have more options. And that also goes with physical, that also helps physical healing, being a little softer with yourself. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that I've heard of worry as having kind of a fire-like aspect to it. Well, it doesn't. Worry doesn't. It's that people identify what they're doing in that fiery way, that running of the thoughts, that restless mind. They identify, they call that worry, where it's not what worry is from an Asian medicine point of view. Are there other ways that people talk about worry 
that might actually be the influence of a different organ? Uh, uh, besides fire or whatever? Besides fire, yeah. Mm. I'm just wondering if there's something, someone comes in, they go, they're, they're worried and they express it in a certain way and you go, hmm, actually that's a liver issue or hmm, actually that's a kidney issue. Well, I could think of how it could be a liver issue. Like if they say, I'm worried I'm going to hit somebody if they say another word to me. That's clearly not worry. That's clearly anger, right? So, yeah, I think all of those things that the, that the way we express in words makes some kind of indentation on our emotions or on our spirit. And if we can clear those messes up, I think it makes it a little easier to see your way through to your healing. And it sounds like you, as a, as a practitioner who spent time listening both with your hands and your ears and your heart, maybe even more, you're able to suss out when someone says something. It, it's like, oh, this is this organ system. Oh, this is this element. This is the involvement of, of this particular meridian. Yeah, particularly if I've gotten that other one in my diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? That's another tool that we have. I've already got a diagnosis. So if they're calling it something else, I can be pretty sure that we need to straighten right. some stuff out. Wow. I'd like to move into some, I guess, technical in a sense. I, at least I think of it as technical. I'm curious to know your take with your experience on things like the extraordinary vessels, the extra meridians, and things like the divergent flows, the divergent channels. Uh, is there anything from the shiatsu side of the house that that has something to say about these? I know that with uh, Japanese acupuncture in particular, there's a lot of attention given to the extraordinary vessels. And I'm curious to get your take on these. Well, I mean, I work primarily with the primary meridians, and um, I will work a little bit with the sinew channels, mm, a little bit, and I'll, I'll work with the divergent and uh, extraordinary vessels, but I think they can all be accessed through the primary channels, particularly the divergent channels and the extraordinary vessels. They don't have points of their own. They share points with those primary channels. And um, for me, I have to say, Michael, at this point in my practice, I am not very technical anymore. I've practiced for so long that the technical part, I can't not be technically on. Do you know what I mean? I can't because I've done it for so long, nothing else happens. It's, It's like... If you wanted to go into the kitchen right now, you would just get up and walk. You don't have to practice the technique of walking anymore. You can't not walk there if you want to go there. You you <laughs> already know how to ride that bike. Yeah, right. So I don't concentrate on the technical aspects. So for me, the extraordinary vessels, the divergent vessels, the primary channels, and the sinew channels, they are all particular ideas. Like the sinew channel, the idea is basically the sinews, right? The, um, you know, I, I don't know, uh, releasing stuff from the surface, all, all that kind of thing. The primary channels, they're about making connection with the mind-body, at least from a Zen Shiatsu point of view. And even from a five elements point of view, there's that connection. And so, you know, when I work on, I work on levels depending, and I'm calling all those different levels of channels, right? Those levels, the sinew level, the primary level, the divergent and extraordinary level, I work on them basically by what I am thinking and what I am trying to transmit, I guess you would say, to my client, for my client. I am using the places where I feel access to those levels. They might not be the points that are on the maps because I'm in the territory now. The map isn't as important. Mm -hmm. And as you know, nobody has 365 points on one side of their body all the time. Right, those points are those maps show what points usually come up for most people. 
for a majority, but nobody has all those points all the time. And sometimes the points that show up are not on the map. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, yes. I, so, I, I think anyone yeah. that's practiced for any length of time, at least if they're putting their hands on people, you know, I mean, there are folks that just measure. I mean, there's even people that pull out a ruler and, you know, will measure and go the points there. But I'm thinking for the people that, that put their hands on people, you can feel after a period of time if something's there or not. Right. And I believe that the same is true, that you can feel what's there. So you can mm-hmm. feel if what you're accessing is X level if it's primary channel, if it's divergent. And then what happens is your intent changes according to what you're trying to access, what you're trying to influence. I have to say, I think what we're doing really is influencing. I know there are a lot of people who um, feel uncomfortable with putting any of their own intent into things, but I'm not one of those people. I think that it's all about intent. Tell us more about that. I'm, I'm, I've, I've also heard folks talk about the importance of intention. And then I've heard other people talk about simply being attentive. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the use of intention in the work that you do. We could go back to the simple example that I gave of, you know, just a little tap on the shoulder and what you say with that. That's an example of intention. Mm-hmm. And so the touch feels different. And another way of thinking of intention is I, I kind of think of myself as a cheerleader for my clients. That's another word that my colleague Pauline used to use. She's a cheerleader. But that's how I feel like if something needs motivation in the in the flow of energy, my hand is on a place where it's a little sluggish or whatever. Basically, as I'm touching, I'm going, come on, come on, you can do it. Let's go. Mm-hmm. You know, that's intention for me. And it and you can't have that intention without attention because without the attention you never would have noticed. So they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, they do. That that makes sense. And I'm thinking sometimes it's not it's not just needles and it's not just, you know, your hand working on a point. Sometimes I'll hear a patient say something, it's it, and there'll be a weakness in their voice. Hmm. And I can tell that that there's that there's something that's not filled out in them. Often a way that they express themselves in relationship, hmm. you know, with other people. And if they could just get a little more boosted up in that. So for example, if someone comes in and they've got an issue with anger and, and, and their issue with anger is that they can't express it. Mm-hmm. They can't set and hold a boundary. They can't let people know, hey, you're on my toes, get off my toes. That to be able to inhabit that part of themselves will dramatically change the field around them and the way that people relate to them, which in turn can really shift all kinds of physical things that are going on. Um, And certainly the psychoemotive aspects like anxiety and depression, which people come into a lot, you know, come in with a lot in, uh, in our clinics. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Sometimes it's just the words. Mm -hmm. Winter Jade, I'm noticing the time here and and we could probably go on for hours, but I, I strive to keep these two roughly an hour. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wonder if there's any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners today. Well, I just want to say that it, it, those of us who are in this medicine, we do love these philosophical conversations about our work. I just want to say that this level of understanding that makes this so interesting to us also does come with developing the skill. And the more skillful you are, the more of the energy that you notice. And the more that that happens, the more interesting the work gets. And you never get tired of doing this stuff that way. We're lucky. We're lucky people to have found this, I have to say. Absolutely. Sometimes people ask me about retirement, and I'm thinking, why would I do that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you too, Michael. It was lovely. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.